All right, well, welcome back to our Assurance of Salvation Bible study. We're just going to jump right into it this evening because we have plenty of ground to cover. But plus, I think we're finally getting into the material that most of you were seeking in this study when it comes to the assurance of salvation. I think most people just want to know practically how they can tell if they're saved or if they're really born again. They're looking for, you know, practical steps or tests to apply to see if they're truly saved. It doesn't fully work that way, however. And so we've spent the several, several of our first few lessons in this series studying the foundation of assurance. Our salvation is ultimately assured because of God's promises in his word to save forever those who believe in Jesus Christ. So if you believe in Jesus and you take God at his word, you can be assured of your salvation. And assurance is ultimately a trusting God issue. And the first several lessons we covered all that. But we also spent time studying, you know, the reason this is not fully satisfying is that there's such a thing as false faith. We're saved by faith alone, and we're ultimately assured based on our, our faith, our trust in God and his promises. But scripture tells us over and over again that there are people who think they have faith, but they don't. They have a false faith, a phony faith, and that's unsettling. It's possible to have a, a fake faith, a faith that doesn't save. And the Bible says not just a few, but many people are like this. So how are we to know that what we think is saving faith is the real deal and it's not something else? How do we know we're not deceived? No one, I trust, wants to find out the hard way that all along they thought they were believing in Jesus or had true faith, but then they learned they're rejected from the kingdom. No, no one wants that. So is there a way for us to know better and evaluate ourselves in our faith? And the answer is yes. The Bible doesn't leave us in the dark. It has plenty to say about the nature and the character of false faith and true faith. And scripture gives many descriptions and depictions of the type of faith that does not save as well as the type of faith that does save what real, genuine faith looks like and what, we're, what we mean by saving faith. And as you learn those pictures, you can examine yourselves in light of true saving faith and gain assurance that your faith in Christ is real as it measures up. And then by that faith, you can be assured of your salvation. And that explains why our study has kind of shifted from the assurance of salvation per se to the assurance of faith. We're now trying to figure out how to tell if your faith in Jesus is real. And along these lines, we were looking at 12 distinguishing marks of faith from Scripture. 12 distinguishing marks of faith from Scripture. And these help form, you might say, that the practical basis of our assurance. And these marks equip us to evaluate our own faith to see if it measures up, if it's what the Bible says is real faith. What if what it looks like is real faith? We started into these 12 distinguishing marks last time. We just covered the first two, but they're really big. Number one was obedience. And number two was repentance. Through some intense Bible study, it became exceedingly clear that we are not saved by works, not even a little. But a true saving faith will come to produce works. It will result in works and obedience and bearing fruit according to God's will. And on top of that, when one falls short, 
and stumbles back into sin, true faith will also show itself in repentance. And so you have obedience and repentance. They're not the only marks of a faith that saves, but they are big marks. They are big identifiers of of a, a true saving faith. Scripture consistently teaches that a life lived in a, a willful, willful obedience to God and his word are essential identifiers of a real saving faith. Now, we spent all of our time last week exploring that in scripture. We're not going to do that again. Now, we're going to move on to some more of these marks, distinguishing marks of a type of faith that saves. According to scripture, what's the description? What's the depiction of a type of faith that saves? And what are the characteristics of it? Well, today we're going to cover three, four, and five. We'll keep trotting through these and learn from Scripture the marks of a real faith. So number three, let's carry on. Third mark of genuine faith, love for God. Love for God. I hope it's not surprising to you, but let's talk about it nonetheless. And what is the greatest command? To love the Lord God with all your heart. It was God's main command for Israel in the Old Testament. To have no other gods before him, but to love him with all of their hearts. But where you read like Deuteronomy and just study the Old Testament, you understand that, that God himself knew that his people couldn't really do that. They didn't have the capacity to truly obey that command or any command because they were dead in sin. They were uncircumcised in heart. They were like all people, opposed to God by nature, loving sin and self and not God. But God promised a day would come when he would give to all of his people new hearts, circumcised hearts, free from the defilement of sin. And he would cause them to walk in his ways and he would enable them to truly love him. They would need new hearts to do that. God would provide even that in his grace. But apart from that divine work, it's not even possible to truly love God as scripture defines. And God himself made clear that a true love for God is not possible among the unsaved. If you don't get this, you just need to study further the depths of depravity into which humanity fell after the fall and after the curse. Our very natures are corrupt and we are inclined away from God from birth. Only by God's work of salvation, though, can people truly love him. And that's why, though, a love for God can be a real mark of saving faith, a real identifier of salvation. There, there's a love for God that wasn't there before, and that gives evidence that one has been born again and has been given one of those new hearts that should now love God. So let's explore this. Listen to Deuteronomy 5, 8 through 10, God saying in the Old Testament, he told them, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. God commanding his people to have no other gods before him and make no other idols. You know, idolatry was such a serious sin because it basically expressed a form of hatred for God and scorn for God. And that's, that's naturally what came out of the heart of man, being lost and depraved, exchanging the truth of God for a lie, 
that that's a form of hatred for God. That's why adultery is a serious sin. But by way of contrast, though, what would set God's people apart? And, and who are those on whom God sets his love? Well, those who love him and keep his commandments. You don't earn God's love by loving him and keeping God's commandments, but you reveal you're the ones who have received the saving love of God. But there's a, just a consistent distinction in Scripture. The lost are those who hate God. And the saved are those who love God, as Scripture defines. Romans 1, verse 30. How are the lost described in that verse? It says, haters of God. They're haters of God. Romans 8, 7 says, the mind set on flesh is hostile to God. And the unbeliever is marked by a natural inclination away from God and the things of God. But things should be different for the believer. In coming to Christ by faith, you should at the very least experience this, this new love for God that wasn't there before. There should be a distinct part of you, a new self, that's no longer at enmity with God, no longer in rebellion against God and his will. And to the contrary, you should have a new self which just loves God entirely. It loves everything about God, his character, his attributes, his nature, his works, his will, his word, his glory, his name, his kingdom. And this new love of God comes with godly affections and gives evidence of a heart that has been made new. Because that, that type of love for God, it's not coming from the flesh. Love like this is a work of the spirit within, gives evidence. You, you really have been born again. Psalm 42 Verses 1 and 2, the psalmist says, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. The unbeliever or the false believer cannot relate to a verse like that, or really any of the psalms, because they don't, they don't actually experience this really deep longing for God, this upward desire for God. The true believer, though, Imperfect, yes. Distracted by the world, sometimes. But they're going to experience these new desires for the Lord. They're going to thirst after God. They will come to just naturally. You can't ultimately help it because you are alive and living things grow. They're going to experience the growth of these desires for God and a love for God. We have to make an important qualification here. Even after salvation, we still have the flesh. We're still sinners. We are called to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. But I tend to agree with R.C. Sproul who, who said, who does that? Even after salvation, who perfectly loves God 100% all the time? No one, not even for a minute. And we still fall short of that ultimate standard until glorification. We will not fully love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength every moment until we're perfected. And that's because we still have the flesh. There's still a part of us that doesn't love God and that serves sin and self. And that's obviously not okay per se, but the Bible reveals this is an understood reality for believers. And that sadly, even believers will not love God perfectly in this life. And that's any exceptions in the room. Anyone perfectly love God all the time? But the point we're making is that if you are truly new, truly alive, truly saved, that there's going to be a part of you that this new self that hates the flesh and loves God. And though you may not perfectly love God, 
you will love God and you will want to love him more. And so do you experience this? Can you say that coming in coming to faith in Christ, though imperfect, you have a real love for God and the things of God that wasn't there before? Or do you completely just resent God and his will? And there are some who, you know, they claim to be Christians, but it seems like it's begrudgingly. Like, are you sure you want to be a Christian? This is like a big drag to you. You see this oftentimes in the youth. You maybe have a, a young person who's, they're really, they're at church because their parents just kind of drag them to church. And, and to a degree, that's expected. But the young person is forced to be in church, but maybe he doesn't have a personal faith. He resents God. Being a Christian is just a burden to him, not a blessing. And this whole concept of longing after God or panting for God is completely foreign to him. That's, that's like, you're talking an alien language. Like, what does that even mean? He doesn't really love God. He's still at enmity with God in his heart. Does that sound like you? Or can you say by faith that you, you do, you recognize God, you submit to God, you love God, even though sometimes that love can appear weak. Well, let's carry on a little bit. Naturally, a love for God will include a love for his son. These we just dovetail together. Love for God will include a love for his son. So we're still on point number three here, but this is made explicit in scripture and it's tied to true saving faith. In 1 John 5, 1, he says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the father loves the child born of him. Means that you can no longer say you love God if you don't love his son, Jesus Christ. Like now that Christ has come and the revelation has been given of the son fully that you can't say that anymore. If you claim to love the father, but you don't love the son, well, you don't love the father. The only way to the father now is through the son. And we express our love for God by loving his son, who is the perfect image of God, as we learned in Colossians, right? You also have Matthew 10, 37. Jesus makes a couple of stunning statements about true discipleship, what it means to actually follow him. In Matthew 10, 37, he says, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That's really serious. He takes our strongest relationships, our strongest bonds of love, your spouse, your children. That to us, that's, that's top, top of the list. Humanly speaking, there's no other greater love that we know. And he's saying, like, if you don't love him more, you're not a true disciple. You cannot be a disciple. Love for him, faith in him requires a supreme allegiance and love. And he is supremely worthy. And listen to how Jesus says the same thing in the negative. At another point, he made the same point, but in the negative. Luke 14, 26. He said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You can't even be a disciple if you don't hate everyone else. Now, obviously, Jesus is using hyperbole. We are not to hate our relatives. We are called to love others, love all, even love our enemies. He's clearly using hyperbole. But the point he's making is that our love for him should be so extreme 
that our love for everyone else is it's like hatred in comparison. Like the gulf between our love for the Lord and everyone else is so vast. You might as well call it hatred because we just love him so much more. That's what he's saying. He is the supreme Lord of the universe after all. And we should love him supremely. And keep in mind, this is what we're studying here. That this love is the mark of a true disciple. That's what he said. You can't be his disciple if you don't have this supreme love for him. And to the contrary, the one who rejects Christ hates Christ and hates the Father. And Jesus said in John 15, 23 through 25, he said, He who hates me hates my Father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. And also 1 Corinthians 16, 22, Paul says at the end, if anyone, he's talking about Jesus. He says, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. And he says, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. But you see how Paul essentially equates loving Jesus with receiving and believing in Jesus. They're really one and the same. They always go together. How can you say you believe in Jesus when you don't truly love him and vice versa? There's no such thing as a true faith without love. And that's what we're after. And we're asking, is my faith real? I, I think I am saved and have faith in Jesus, but how do I know I don't have the phony faith? Well, one important qualification, do you you love God. You have a new love for God that wasn't there before. And a love for his son as well, Christ Jesus. A supreme love for him more than all others. Well, we'll keep reflecting on this love theme. And moving forward, a fourth distinguishing mark of true faith is love for others. Love for God, now love for others. And right up the alley of love for God comes love for others. And this should be a natural consequence of loving God. You know, sin divides by nature. You probably already figured that out. You know, just being fundamentally selfish, our sin divides us. It divides us from God vertically and divides us from one another in life horizontally. But in salvation, as God overcomes our sin problem, he enables the restoration of all of our divided relationships. And first and foremost, that means reconciliation with God vertically. Our, our fellowship, our relationship with God is restored through Christ. But God also enables us to be reconciled to others horizontally. New birth enables us to truly love God and serve him Vertically, but it also enables us to now truly love others and serve them horizontally. It's everywhere expected that Christians will not only have a, a new love for God that wasn't there before, but they will also, they must have a new love for others. And this is meant to be a defining mark for Christians. Read a couple of verses and then I'll start making you flip around. First Thessalonians 4. 9 through 10, he tells them, As to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more 
you know, a couple of points from that. First, it's never been a mystery that God's people are supposed to love one another. That's always been the defining mark of God's people. They have this otherworldly, not of this world, love for one another, for God, and also for one another. That's never been a mystery. And in addition, though, it's, it's encouraging because we're not talking perfect love. Who perfectly loves God? Who perfectly loves others? Paul, though, was encouraged by the Thessalonians because they had a real love that was genuine. Perfect? No. But real? And nonetheless, he calls them to excel still more. And our assurance, we'll, we'll learn more at the end as well, that you know, our measure for these, for these marks is not perfection. It's not, do you perfectly love God? Then you can gain assurance that your faith is real. Do you perfectly love others? Only then can you gain assurance that your faith is real. No, it's just, do you love God and love others? Even imperfectly at times. But is, is it there? And it, does it show itself as we'll see? Yeah, we all need to excel still more like the Thessalonians. But Paul was encouraged that their faith was real because they really showed a real love for others. Well, at James chapter 2, verse 8, where James says, if you are fulfilling the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. It's no wonder that love is the fulfillment of God's law, that his will for us has always been about love, for God is love. His commandments were geared toward pointing us to a love for him and a love for others. And those who love others, they're fulfilling that part of his royal law. And Christ himself adds that this love for others, is just, it's a straight up defining mark for a Christian. If you don't have this mark, you can't be identified as a Christian, according to Jesus. John 13, 34 and 35. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you love one another. Then he says, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. According to Jesus, this is what sets apart a Christian, love for one another. The church is a showcase such humble and selfless and sacrificial love for one another that the world takes notice because that type of love to the glory of God certainly doesn't exist in the world. But just think about that. If Jesus says that this love for one another is a defining mark of a Christian, don't you think it's also going to be a defining mark of true saving faith? Like, don't those have to go together? I mean, if someone says he has faith, but he does not have this love for others, would you say that faith is real or not? We don't have to guess because John in 1 John straight up answers that question for us over and over again. So now let's go to 1 John. 1 John chapter 2. 1 John makes this point louder and clearer than, than all others. So go to 1 John chapter 2. We were in 1 John a lot last week with the test of obedience to God's will. For example, 1 John 2, 3. He says, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. How do you know if you have come to know God? That's your claim. I know God. I'm saved. I have faith. How do you know that you have actually come to know him? 
That's assurance. We're talking assurance now. Well, by keeping his commandments. You're not saved by keeping the commandments, but they evidence you have come to know him, you have been born again, and that fruit of faith is showing itself. So obedience is a big test in John, but so is love for one another. Look at verse 9 of 1 John 2. It says, the one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 5, God is light. The one who says he's in the light but walks in the darkness is a liar. Chapter 1, verse 6, that they're unsaved. They, they claim they're in the light, but they're walking in the darkness. Here, John connects this to hating his brother. A person claims to be in the light. He says he's in the light. What does that mean? No doubt from chapter 1, this, it's a, a claim of salvation. I, I know the God who is light. I'm in the light. I'm a Christian. But he hates others. He has a hatred for the brethren, for the church, for others. And that displays his claim is false. His faith is false. His salvation is false. His assurance is false. Verse 10, 11, he says, the one who loves his brother abides in the light and there's no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Very clear contrast. You're obviously not saved by loving others, but love for others is such a necessary consequence of true saving faith that it can be made a a real distinguishing mark. If someone does not have this mark of love for others on their faith, how can you say that faith is real? It just is such a necessary corollary to true saving faith. And John makes it so clear. If someone does have, though, a real love for others, well, they may gain assurance that their faith is real. Let's keep going. Look at 1 John 3, starting in verse 11. John really piles on this test of love for others in 1 John. Look at verse 11 of 1 John 3. He says, For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. And John is echoing the words of Jesus here in verse 11, the love one another command. With an example, a contrast of Cain. Notice how it says Cain was of the evil one. You see that? He was of the evil one, meaning the devil. Remember the sermon last Sunday, Genesis 3.15, the curse. God was going to put enmity between not only the woman and the serpent, but the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Who's the seed of the serpent? We didn't really talk about that, but the serpent has a seed as well. And that just shows from Genesis 3.15 on, God was was going to divide humanity. And some, if not most, would be the son of Satan, the seed of Satan, children of the devil, like John says later in the chapter. Those, the unredeemed, the lost. But God would redeem a remnant always, the seed of the woman in plural. Of course, that ultimately points to Christ as the seed of the woman, but... There would be a redeemed humanity, children of God, who would be different. These two lines are separated. You see that immediately with Cain and Abel. There would be children of God. There would be children of the devil as well. How are the children of the devil known? Well, 
hatred for one another, which is expressed in many ways. And contrarily, children of God would be known by love for one another. Look at verse 13. It gets, it gets clearer. Verse 13 it says, do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. That's another really clear verse. This is what we're asking, right? You want assurance? How do I know that I've passed out of death into life? How do I know I'm, I'm born again? I'm truly alive. Here's how you know. Because we love the brethren. It's crystal clear. And conversely, if you don't love the brethren, he says, you're, you're still spiritually dead. You, you abide in death. You, you have not spiritually risen to new life. Your faith is not saving. Verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. It's not just murderers we're talking about. Murder is just extreme form of hatred. But he's saying hatred itself gives evidence of a heart that does not possess new eternal life. You know, instead of taking life, right, the heart of self, the murderer, the hater, it's the one who takes life. Instead of that, true faith and a new heart will show itself by laying down your life for others. Instead of taking the life of another, you will lay down your life for another. That's verse 16. The next verse, he says, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. He didn't take our lives and kill us. He laid down his life for us. And then it says, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. This is how we receive love. This is how we know love. This is now how we show love. Completely opposite the world. In verse 17, practical example. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? The answer is it doesn't. We will know, or I'm sorry, verse 18, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. He gives an example. So, you know, there's this kind of love for others. What's he talking about? He's not just talking about feeling warm fuzzies for other people or just having or just saying nice things, saying, you know, verbal expressions of love. He's talking about action and deed and seeing someone in need and you're actually sacrificing, laying down your life one way or another to meet their need. That's, that's what type of love we're talking about. Just look to Christ on the cross. He didn't just say, I love you, but he showed his love by laying down his life. That's the measure of love we're talking about here. And to finish this passage, verse 19, he says, we will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. And whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. This is how we will know we are of the truth. This is how we will assure our hearts before him. And that's what we're trying to do. This is how we gain confidence before the Lord. Do you want to gain confidence before God and assure your own heart. That's what you're trying to do with assurance, trying to assure your own heart. Well, it's really simple. Do you have an abiding love for others or not? Now, before we make a few more comments, let's look at one more passage in 1 John in chapter 4. 
Because he, like I said, he just keeps piling it on. It's actually three more passages, but they're all in chapter 4. Verse 7. We'll do these quick for the sake of time. Verse 7. He says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God. For God is love. Who is the one who's born of God? That, that means born again. That's a salvation term. Who is the one who's born of God? Who is the one who knows God? Well, those who love. Like it's, it's as simple as can be. And who are those who do not know God in verse 8? Well, the ones who do not love. Remember with John, he's, he's talking about patterns of life. Just keep that in mind. Not talking about a one-time act. So if you're the person who you live in, in hatred of others, you don't love others habitually, characteristically. You can't just say like, wait, I remember that one time 10 years ago, I, I showed love to that one person. Like, you're not going to gain assurance from that. John is always talking about the pattern of your life, the, the habitual characteristic display of your life when he talks about these terms. No one's perfect, but do you give evidence of a pattern of love for others. Verse 10, 11, a couple more. He says, in this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Just making a simple point here is, as John reminds us that our love for others is, is not to be guilt-driven or duty-driven or religion-driven. It's, it's love-driven. Why do we love others? Because he loved us first. He showed us this love. He transformed us. And all it takes for the true Christian is to remember the love of Christ. And it will compel you to love others by the Spirit. And our, our love must be Christ-driven and worship-driven and thanksgiving-driven. Just make sure your love for others is not a, a hidden, prideful love. You're trying to get something out of it. But a real Christ-like Love. I'm just laying down my life for others to the glory of God. But lastly, let's wrap this up. Verse 19. He says, We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we also have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. I'm like, how many times does John have to keep saying the same thing? It's like way, way back in the day when I taught through first John, it can get frustrating because it's kind of like keeps repeating himself. Like, how do I make this sound new? It's kind of the same thing, but that's okay. He's repeating himself on purpose, driving it home. He's really just saying the same thing in different ways uh, over and over again. Someone says, I love God. Right? This is even a check and balance on the, the claim to love God, right? That the mark of faith, do you really love God? Well, how do you even know that? That's real. Well, you say you love God, but you hate your brother. He says you're a liar, meaning your, your claim, your, your profession to love God is, is false. That, that's a mark of false faith, false assurance. But the one who does love his brother and shows love for others can gain assurance that his love for God and his faith and God is real. Love for others is not a work that saves us. 
But it is a work that evidences we have been saved. And it's a very big evidence. You know, right there with obedience, love for God, love for others, obedience to his will. This is an expression of obedience to his will. They're up there as essential defining marks of a real Christian. And that if you're real, they're going to show themselves that they will. They must. Just like the, the real tree, the good tree, the healthy tree will just by its very nature bear fruit. So the true believer will bear these marks. And this is a big evidence because the last thing our flesh is going to do is selflessly sacrifice itself for the good of others just to the glory of God. Right? If you evidence that, it's, it's not coming from the flesh. If it's from the right motives, you are truly laying down your life for others at, just out of glory to God. Well, process of elimination, like that's not coming from the flesh at all. With If it's from the right heart motive, it, it's a work of the spirit. If you bear this work, you can assure your heart before God and gain confidence. Your faith is real. When you say you love God, you're real. You're the real deal. You can be assured. Now, we're going to squeeze in one more here. One more distinguishing mark of true faith. Number five, loss of love for the world. Loss of love for the world. Just to continue the love theme. You know, when you come to salvation, God gives you a new heart. It's a heart that will love the things that God loves. So you're going to come to love Christ and you're going to come to love God's people because he does. But that new heart will also hate the things that God hates. And so you will come to hate the world. And we have to define world. We don't mean the people of the world. We love the lost. We love our neighbors. We love the lost. We even love our enemies. We're called to love all. We don't hate them. But by the world, we're talking about the evil world system ruled by Satan and in rebellion to God. That's how John uses the word cosmos in 1 John, a technical term. The evil world system led by Satan in rebellion against God. And over time, the true believer will come out of the world and display more and more of a distaste for the world and the things of the world. The world tells you this is what's valuable. This is what's true. This is good. This is beautiful. And we used to believe all those things. But the the Christian over time, more and more will come to completely disagree with just the world, its values, its worldview, what it cherishes. We will just be totally opposite because the things of God and things of the world are opposite. But that's a sign of new birth. Go back to 1 John 2. This is also in 1 John. Very well-known passage, 1 John 2, 15. 15 through 17. He says, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also it's less, but the one who does the will of the Father lives forever. Verse 15 is clear. If you love the world, love of God is not in you. If your life is marked by just the habitual, ongoing, unrepentant indulgence in the world and the things of the world, you're giving evidence you still belong to the world. What's in the world? Verse 16 is sin, rebellion, hatred of God. If you love all that, if you love this world, this world hates God and everything about God. If you love that, that's the mark of your life. 
how can you really say you love God? Now, of course, we have the flesh, and your flesh loves the world. But the believer recognizes this struggle and is going to experience this growing loss of love for the world as they crucify their flesh. And so do you find that your love for the world and the things of this world have diminished as you continue in your walk with Christ? Or does your life and your values look no different than from before you were a Christian? Who is the one who lives forever? Verse 17, the one who does the will of God. We've established many times that that's not how you live forever by doing the will of God, but that's how you show you will live forever. You have been saved and born again. You're now a doer of the word. It's an evidence of new birth. God's will is diametrically opposed to the will of the world, you could say. So whose will ultimately rules your life? The will of God or the will of the world? Whom do you really follow? And you know, that love, love for God, love of the world, that's going to indicate who you are, who you really are. James 4, 4, James says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Remember Christ said, you can't serve two masters. So which is it? Whom do you truly serve? Are you trying to ride the fence? That's merely betraying your allegiance to God because he demands all of you. In salvation, we swear full love and obedience to God. But look, sometimes we do betray that allegiance, weak in the flesh. But again, the true believer will feel that burden as often as they fall into the ways of the world. They stumble back into the darkness. They will repent. Right? Isn't that 1 John 1? Going back to Mark number 2, repentance. You are in the light. We, we must be in the light, but you stumble in the darkness, we repent. And likewise, James right after calls his audience to repent. But we're saying, though, the pattern of your life should be an increasing godliness and a diminishing worldliness. Because of that faith, as it builds and grows and bears fruit, you just, you love what God's love or what God loves. You love his ways, his people. And you, just, you lose that taste and that love, that desire for the world and it's, it's ongoing rebellion against God. Your appetite for the things of the world should sour. Colossians 1.13 says, God rescued us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And then Jesus said in John 3, 19 through 21, he says, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. If you're in Christ, you have been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light. Are you good with that? Are you happy that happened? Do you, do you love that? Do you rejoice that you, you've been freed from slavery to sin? Or do you mostly wish you could just go back? Do you just mostly long for the deeds of darkness? Do you mostly practice the deeds of darkness? I mean, do, do you love the light? Or do you love the darkness, which has captured your heart? That's going to indicate the nature of your faith, real 
or false. Well, love for God, love for others, a loss of love for the world is the three more important distinguishing marks of true faith. And as you evaluate your life and your faith, do you, do you bear these marks or not? And your assurance will rise and fall accordingly. Just to finish, though, as a final thought, I want to encourage you, though. You know, sometimes, especially in First John, it can appear that these are black and white categories. Either you love God or you don't. It seems like there's no middle ground. And in a sense, that's true. Either you love God or you don't. But we know that inside and in our daily walk, it sure feels a lot more gray. Because inside of us, we would say, yeah, I do love God. I truly love God. I fully love God. I don't want to be in the world anymore. I fully love God's people. I mean, we, we say that inside. We believe that, right? But at the same time, we don't always act that way. We often betray our hearts and our confessions by failing to do that, which is loving to God and loving to others, and sometimes embracing worldliness. And so we live with this inconsistency all the time. And such is the nature of our spiritual battle with sin and with the flesh. But here's an even bigger question. Do you even sense this struggle? And are you engaged in this struggle? Do you desperately wish to be rid of the flesh that you might fully enter into the love of God? And when you fail, all those times, you fail to love God. You fail to do that which is loving to God. You fail to love others. You show hatred to others. You ever do that? I think we all have shown hatred to others. When you fail, though, you repent. It grieves you. You, you recognize as you return to the Lord, you have done which is wrong, that which is wrong. You have betrayed your confession because you do love God and his people and you repent. And as often as you get caught up in worldliness, as you come to your senses, you, you turn, you repent, and you come back. I'll say again, the measure of true faith here that we're looking for is not perfection. We still fall short. What we're getting at are, are signs of life. The true faith will show itself in these areas over time. Not perfectly, but do you see signs of life? Are you a living thing? And, and living things that have been born again, you're not spiritually dead anymore. They grow and bear fruit, right? Remember, they grow and they bear fruit. And so look to your life. Are, are you growing and bearing fruit in these categories? Not, not perfect. Have you arrived? I haven't. But are you growing and bearing fruit in loving God, loving others, not loving the world? You may be encouraged. You may be assured. Those are signs of life. And then keep up the struggle. Keep pursuing the Lord and a love for him. So often as going gets tough, just look up, look heavenward, cast your eyes on him. And like Paul said, you can say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Because we, we do long to be rid of this world and this struggle. We long to be with the Lord and in his love forever. And just let that encouragement, though, help you to press on, to excel still more. And that itself becomes a mark of true faith. That perseverance becomes a mark of true faith. But we'll save that for next time. We'll come back next week. And we'll hope to even finish up the, the remaining seven, right? Are, uh, they're shorter. They're smaller. The first five are big. So we might finish these up next week and continue to study the marks of true faith. Well, let's go in a word of prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your word this evening that we've studied and are encouraged by being reminded of, of even the call to love you, to love others, to not love the world. And we confess 
before salvation, that was certainly us. We had no love for you. We were in rebellion. We were at enmity with you. We were enemies. And we only loved self in our sin. We did not truly love others. Even our love for others was selfishly motivated. We were most definitely in the world and of the world and sons of perdition and of the evil one. And apart from your intervening grace, we would be that way today. And we can say it's only by your grace that we are here to to seek you, to, to study your word, to love you. That's because you called us out. You called us from the world and from the domain of darkness. You transferred us to the kingdom of your son by grace. You, you gave us a heart that now can love you and love others and, and lose that love for the world. We thank you for this transforming grace through our faith in Christ. And, and we do, our hearts are encouraged, I trust, for us here today that we see that the faith made alive and, and come to fruit in our lives. We confess we, we do have that love for you and others in our hearts. Yet where our spirit is willing, the flesh is often weak. I pray you help us engage in this the struggle of spiritual warfare where we continue to put off sin, put on righteousness, that we might even grow in our love for you and love for others. To purify our hearts this evening, Lord, that we would fall more out of love with the passing pleasures of the world and these little distractions that capture our affections and we would be more and more zealous for you and your purposes and, and your people. And uh, as we grow and bear fruit, that our hearts may be assured before you. Just build us up in the faith. Help us just in this struggle, the struggle of this life. But we do pray you, you give us assurance as we look to our, our faith and see it measure up with true faith in scripture. That assurance helps us to endure and press on and excel some more. That's what we need to do. So be with us in this pursuit. And again, in our study going forward, just keep teaching us your word and assurance. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.